Well, it is so entirely good to be back here in this room. I, I told the group yesterday that um, this room is, is really a sacred space for me, and, uh, and I forget that until I'm back, and, uh, and then I just get, I well up every time we worship here together for whatever reason. I've been back a number of times since we moved away five years ago, but this this, um, this place is very sacred and special, and it's good to be with you again. Um, Dennis, you know, your, your girls may have wanted to stay home from school today. My kids wanted to come in my suitcase with me today. They've not been back yet. In fact, this morning, I had to make a quick dash out to Robinson. My, 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 uh, my children told me, uh, don't come home without bakery donut. There's this little donut shop that sells the best kolaches with cheese that we ever ate while we were here, and we discovered it out in Robinson. So this morning, I had to dash out and dash back with the kolaches in my suitcase. Well, now, gracious God, in these moments, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts together in this room be found pleasing in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I heard a pastor once uh, talking about one of his mentors, and uh, the mentor was was a businessman who'd had a big impact on this pastor's life and ministry. Uh, the pastor had huge regard for, for this guy who happened to be the CEO of some company, I forget which, and, and, and was really a gifted leader. Uh, but this mentor also had a habit of doing something that the pastor found really, really irritating. Whenever the two of them got together uh, for lunch or coffee or, you know, in, in the office or whatever, the mentor at some point in the conversation would always lean back in his chair and sort of put his hands behind his head and look the pastor in the eye and, and ask him this question. Son, what are you working on big? What are you working on big? And the pastor felt just completely intimidated by that question because when he thought about his weekly agenda, it didn't feel big at all. He dreaded that question until he came to understand what it was his mentor was really getting at, and it was this. Okay, friend, sure. You've got to live. You've got to have shelter. You've got to have food on the table, transportation of some kind. got to figure out what you're, you're going to wear and all that stuff, but, but what are you working on big? Beyond just the minutia of your life that's going to consume your time and, and your years. You're going to just wait for Monday to get here, and then it's Tuesday, and then it's the weekend, and then it's another weekend, and then you take a vacation. Are you just going to let your life roll over you and, and deal with what comes, or, or, or are you going to push back? from some of the details of your life and think big about your future and about what maybe God wants you to do. In other words, friend, what are you working on big? Well, it's a great question, isn't it? It's a great question because if you're not careful and if I'm not careful, we can just go day to day and problem to problem consumed with 
the minutia of life and never push back and ask the question, what am I working on big and what perhaps would God have me work on big and what might God want to do with my one and only life beyond just who I'm dating and what I'm buying and what I'm going to do this weekend and will my team make it to the final four and can I pass this test and will he or she call me back and, you know, all that stuff. Maybe there's something bigger and grander. And you and I could do worse than to be forced outside our own immediate context to ask the question, what am I working on big? And if this is true for our lives, and if this is true out in the marketplace, you better believe it's true in the church. Because in the church, we always just naturally want to gravitate toward the minutiae. And it takes enormous discipline and energy and focus to think bigger than usual and to ask God to calibrate our vision and what we hope to do and who we hope to be and where we're supposed to go. I can't help but think of uh, those wonderful words William James once said, William James, 19th century uh, American philosopher, who's the brother of Henry James. And, and, And William James once said something to this effect. He said, the only truly happy people I know are those who have found a cause bigger than themselves to live for. A cause bigger than ourselves. And when you think about it, isn't that one way to describe the mission of Jesus when he walked around down here on human feet? I mean, mean, make no mistake, Jesus cared about the minutiae. You know, he was was incredibly attuned to little things. He noticed the sparrow on the ground, and he noticed the hairs on the head, and he, you know, he he looked down and noticed the flowers at at his feet, and, and he considered them. He noticed the small things, and he said, God does too, and God cares about them. But if you trace the steps of his life, doesn't he always seem to be finding people, men and women, who are preoccupied with small concerns and and setting them free by by lifting them toward God-sized concerns bigger than themselves? For instance, he, he found a group of guys one day all hunched over their fishing nets on the beach, remember? And you know how that goes. They're, they're untangling little knots and mending little tears and picking out little pieces of green stuff. And what did he do when he found them? He lifted them up and he challenged them. Follow me, he said. Fish with me for, for men and women. Come with me and let's change the world. And they did. It was something bigger than themselves. He gave the same kind of challenge to the Pharisees one day. You know, those guys were so wrapped up in trivial pursuits, legalisms and pointing fingers at sinners and living for rules and rituals in order to gain a better opinion for themselves. And Jesus said, big deal. You're you're failing to do the great things. He said, you're you're doing all the little things, but why do you neglect the greater matters of justice, mercy, faith, something bigger than yourself? And in our text today that we heard just a minute ago, we find him trying to give the same kind of freedom to people who were all chewed up with worry. He was teaching a crowd one day, and he looked out and he noticed so many people all bent over with little anxieties about their money, about their clothing, about their food. And he said, y'all, don't worry about that. 
Don't worry about that. What, what should we eat? What should we drink? What should we wear? You spend all your time worrying about who's going to be there and what will they think and what am I going to eat and what am I going to live? Just worry, 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 he says. And, and guess what? He said, pagans, people who don't even know there's a God, that's what they think about. Why would you spend your time consumed by by the minutia when you have a loving God who cares for you? Why, why would you be so caught up in stuff like that? Just like people who don't even know there is a God and, and who don't even know there's a big picture, who don't know there's something bigger and greater to give themselves to. He said, you want to give yourself to something that matters? Seek the kingdom of God first. And God's righteousness and all that minutia is going to take care of itself. Something bigger than yourself. Happiness is found in giving your life to a big enough cause because that's what God made us for. And that's what Jesus came to free us for. Everything he did was aimed at enlarging somebody's cause. So you want to live for something bigger than yourself? Jesus said, live for me. Lose yourself in me and my gospel and you're going to find at last who you really are. Well, I think this is a critical word for the church today. I know the church where I'm serving in Atlanta, we're, we're, we're feeling like we're in a kind of turning point moment. And, and really, it just simply parallels the tectonic plate shift taking place in every church, of every denomination, in every corner of America and most of Europe, and you know what I'm talking about. From the cities to the suburbs, you know, mega churches, tiny churches, Catholic, Protestant, mainline, evangelical, traditional, emergent, it doesn't matter. Everybody's feeling it. The Huffington Post a couple of weeks ago ran a piece by Diana Butler Bass. Some of y'all may have seen it. She called it the end of the church which, you know, sort of had some shock value, but it really didn't say anything we don't already know. She, she just pointed out that the institutional structures of American religion are really in a free fall. I know where I live, there are seven what, what we would call moderate Baptist churches inside or near the perimeter of Atlanta. Several of them once considered flagship churches of our denomination, you know, 40 years ago, 2,000 people, 1,000 people currently on the ropes. One of them's about to close its doors. It was running 500 people just 30 years ago. And the future of, of several others is, is really anything but certain. I'm in a monthly peer group with a lot of the pastors of those churches, and we've spent a lot of time over the last couple of years just looking at each other and saying, what is going on? Well, friends, here's what's going on. The church as we know it is stuck in a habitual pattern of asking the wrong questions. And I want to tell you what I mean by that. From the very first days of the church, Christians had to figure out what God is up to out in the world. Some of the best examples of that are found in the book of Acts. 
You know, the believers in those churches started out with a very particular set of assumptions, assumptions about God, assumptions about salvation and the purpose of, of the church. And all through the, the, the book of Acts, we, we see the Spirit constantly upending the church's assumptions about what it means to be God's people in that time and that place. And, and, and the astonishing thing, really, is the, the, and the instructive thing for us, I think, is the way those believers let God rearrange their assumptions. You know, the, the, the original Christians were, were all Jewish, right? Jesus was Jewish. The, the, the early church was a Jewish movement, and, and they all just naturally assumed that this vibrant new experience of God that Jesus had brought would exist within their own Jewish, Jewish religion. Until God came along and said, uh, no, we'll be welcoming Gentiles now. That was their tectonic plate shift. And, and so the church had to ask, what is God doing now out there that demands a different response from us in here, in the church? And over and over again, these believers found themselves required by the Spirit to ask what it meant to be God's people in that time and place. And, and, and all kinds of questions that really seemed to be settled for them had to be asked all over again. But they kept asking, what's God up to out there that demands a different response from us in here? Okay, Fast forward 1,500 years, we're water skiing over church history this morning. Apologies to the professors. But, but again, Christians are asking, what does it mean to be God's people in this time and place? And their conclusions to that question led to what we know is the, the Reformation. And, and that was another tectonic plate shift for the church and really in human history. And one of the good gifts coming out of the Reformation, as we know, is that, you know, the reclaiming of God's gift of salvation by grace, not by works. Beautiful gift. We're grateful for it. But the Reformation also handed us a very particular set of assumptions that to this day still drives our imaginations. The assumption being that the church should be at the center of culture. And when this church is the center, then the questions Christians are asking, rather than pertaining to what God is doing out there, now all focused on what's happening in the church. And, you know, the thought was we can just get some certain things right if we can get our doctrines right and our worship right and our administration of the sacraments right, then we will be God's people in this time and place. 500 years ago, the Reformation bequeathed to us a set of questions about the Christian life that are mostly church questions. And like it or not, these questions still shape our imaginations today. The question since the Reformation has been, what kind of church do we need and what do we do to make that kind of church work? And what Christians everywhere are finally beginning to admit in great numbers is that those questions are no longer adequate. And that in order for us to be God's people in this time and place, we've got to learn how to reclaim the question of the early church, what is God up to out there that demands a different response from us in here? 
What is God already doing in the neighborhoods, and how can the church get there double quick? If we wanted to compare the kingdom of God maybe to mountain climbing, I would say the vast majority of the churches in the Western world are sort of stuck at base camp, you know? It's become second nature to deal almost exclusively with the church question and all the internal questions about making the church work. But, but y'all, that, that merely gets us to base camp. And I don't know any climber who comes to Everest with the goal of remaining in that little tent village where the food and the equipment and the medical supplies are stored. They've come for the mountain. And I just want to put it to you and, and to me that when we find ourselves expending as much passion and energy and prayers and tears and committee time and congregational wrestling with our quest to understand and relate to the people who on Sunday mornings are on the soccer field or coffee shop or under the bridge or in the city jail or in the shelter or at the mall or anywhere but the sanctuaries where we are worshiping, when we spend ourselves for them with the same passion with which we spend on getting our churches in order, then we will know we have left base camp and we're on the mountain at last. Those of us who are church leaders intend to serve something bigger than ourselves, then there's a question that we need to start asking with all of our energy and passion. And the question is not, how can we be a more effective church? How can we be a more outwardly focused church? How can we be a more evangelistic church or a more caring church or a more relevant church? In fact, the question we have to start asking is not about the church at all. It's about God and what God is doing out there. And I know some of you are thinking, and I don't blame you, you know, well, this is nothing new. This, this is just evangelism. But I want to emphasize again the radical shift in imagination that this is going to require from us in the church. It's a shift away from what can we do to save our church and how can we get more people to come. It's a shift away from that and toward what is God doing on the streets and how can the church catch up with him out there. You and I have been called to serve a bigger gospel. So what are you working on big? Friends, believe this, that Jesus Christ, whom God raised from the dead, is able to take everything in us and in our churches that's too complacent or cold or timid or tepid and raise it to life again. The question is, will we let him? Amen. And so, gracious God, would you show us what bigger task to do, what greater risk to take, and, and what new leap of faith to make now so that we might find your spirit growing in us and moving in us. And as we lift up our hearts to you now, please Lift up our gaze, too, to your purpose for us bigger than ourselves. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.